Okay, there. I I I, I forgot that you could just put whatever background you want on Zoom. All right. No, I've I've been playing with this so much. Like I have like a ton of these Simpsons. I got. Wait, let me see if I can get in the right position for this one. You got it in bed with Shrek. I, I, I got I got so many of these. I, I, love I, I, I love SpongeBob. All right. Welcome to episode four of Small Room. I'm here with Johan Soto. Johan Soto, tell them what you are famous for. What am, what am I famous for? Is it is it MIT? Is that is that that I'm an MIT student? Okay. Well, obviously we're gonna we're gonna make the title of the video how to get into MIT. But I think there's more than just the fact that you go to MIT. What? what a, uh, you tell me. Actually, now now I'm confused. <laughs> I'm actually. I mean, I sort of use, like, what are you famous for as an icebreaker just to see what the person says. But I, I kind of figured that, like, you'd be a little bit more humble than all the other guests I've had thus far. Johan Soto is famous for, aside from the fact he goes to MIT, during at Gables, he was valedictorian, president of SECME. Part, wait, were you part of Engineering Club? I So I actually wasn't, but I was involved to, to a certain extent with it. So, um... But I, I wasn't. I wasn't actually. We'll throw engineering club in there because why not? NHS. NHS. Um, yeah. Just superb NHS. academics. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of my thing. Just kind of a nerd. Um, that's that's about it. Yeah. All right. Well, since the title of the video is going to be "How to Get into MIT," the first question is going to be, "How did you get into MIT?" Okay. Okay. So we're going to the clickbait one. And I mean, that's good. That's a great title because it, it actually is really clickbait. You don't know how many of these articles. I, I mean, that's one of the things I did to get into MIT. I looked up like a shit ton of articles about how to get into MIT, like prep scholar and all that stuff. And I basically followed them to a T. So, you know, a ton of like just focusing on schoolwork and stuff like that. Academics, you, you mentioned it like valedictorian, um, SATs, ACTs. But if I had two things that I think really, or three things maybe, that really sold me, um, one of it was SECME, three years on the generator team, and we got first place each year. So that, that kind of put me in a good category for a science extracurricular. Um, I felt my essays were really strong. I think that's something people kind of overlook, but you really need to nail those essays if you want to get into these colleges because you're competing with people who have similar stats to you. So at a certain point, you have to distinguish uh, people, not just between like 4.0 and 3.9, but like, who, who are they? And what, what do they bring to the school that somebody else might not offer? And then I think lastly was uh, my recommendations. I think my teacher recommendations were strong. And I really recommend if you're trying to get into like, a top school, look for teachers who know you really well and can write about you both professionally and personally. I think that that really helps a ton in setting yourself apart because it gives like an external source to sort of validate all the things that you put on your own application. So I think if I had to pick like three things that really got me into MIT, it's probably those. All right, and aside from doing the extracurriculars just to get into college, um, like what was your intrinsic motivation for doing them? And after that, how do you think it sort of helped you decide what you want to study and what you want to become? Okay, so I mean, the, the primary one really is SECME. I mean, I was involved in NHS also. Um, 
it, it was more of a side activity. And I enjoyed my time in NHS. There's a lot of stuff you get to do, but it was more of a side activity. The, the primary one for me is secular. And I guess with that one, I did, like I said, the generator building competition for three years in a row. And I think that helped me figure out that energy production and, well, number one, energy production is easier than it seems. It, it's actually a simple process fundamentally. It's just that when you scale it up, things get a lot more complex. But uh, energy production is just really, really cool. Um, I, and for me personally, it was my first real experience with this type of science. So it was kind of a moment where I realized I'm not as much into like pure physics, although I still think it's fascinating, but I'd rather apply it a bit more into energy. And although, yet again, it was a water power generator, but what I realized is that I'm absolutely fascinated by the nuclear energy field. And I think there's a lot of unseen potential there that hope that hopefully within the coming few decades is going to be unlocked a bit more by research and hopefully we can reach fusion power in my lifetime. That would be, well, a uh, net positive fusion power. That, that would be something. And how do you think MI, being at MIT and studying at MIT for the past year or so has helped you in, in nuclear energy? Is MIT like really overhyped or do you think for, for what you want to do in nuclear energy, it's been perfect? So, it's a weird thing with MIT because in certain respects, it's overhyped. And I, I don't mean that to bash MIT in any way. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal school and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, it's, in certain respects, people have this idea that, I don't know, like your classes, you're gonna be like building robots or some shit and you're doing something totally out there. And it's not like that. At the, at the end of the day, it's a normal college. Um, I, I'd say the only thing that really distinguishes it is a bit of the pacing. The pacing is super intensive, but um, it's a normal college. You go to lectures, you, you, you go through the normal grind of college life. It's, it's its whole thing. But I do have to say that there are just endless opportunities for the types of passion that, you, for whatever passion that you have, like the, the possibilities there are endless. In my case, before we got kicked out for this whole coronavirus thing, I'm, I'm now back in Miami. But uh, when I was at MIT, I had started a research project analyzing some form of nanocrystalline tungsten. And my job would be to irradiate it and see how well it handles that radiation. That is, could we use this tungsten in building more advanced reactors? And I'm starting this off as a freshman. Uh, you know, I, I kind of overlook that sometimes, but when I really consider it, it's absolutely wild that I get to do this sort of research as a freshman, no prior experience, just they, they ease you right into it. And a lot of MIT is that sort of jump right into it. And that's how you learn. And I, I have to say it's, it's intensive, but at the same time, it's really great for you know, if you're really passionate about something, because it means they're not going to hold you back in any way. They're going to get you in there and let you learn how to do it so that you can become better. So if, so my one year at MIT has sort of been in that respect, extremely productive in the sense that it has sort of streamlined me into what I want to do without any real restrictions on it. I mean, there are no boundaries. 
after and yesterday or the day before when I interviewed Adrian Lightthart and John Mark Kellogg, I asked them how was their experience with Zoom, and they had just, like they hadn't like taken the classes yet or they were about to get started or they were just starting. Uh, and I assume you've been doing Zoom for a few weeks now. How has that been? So, actually, so they kicked us out around uh, March, March fifteenth. I want to say. Yeah, they kicked us out March 15th, and classes since then have been kind of canceled. With that said, I did have a few lectures over Zoom for my Japanese class, and it was absolutely just, it, it, was, it was horrible. But I, I suspect it'll get better over time, but it was horrible at first because, number one, people wouldn't mute their mics, so there was just this insane amount of background noise. You can't it's Japanese. You, you need to listen to what the teacher's saying, but you can't hear anything with all the background noise. It was, it was horrible. This one girl was in her dorm, but then her roommate comes in with friends. So she has to leave, but she doesn't mute the mic. So she's walking through the hallway. There's, there's all the noise. It's, it's, it's absolutely horrible. I, I hated it. And I, I imagine I'm going to hate all my lectures through Zoom, except maybe my math classes. Those were, those were very small classes. I'm in a special program for math classes. So I have small math classes, but for my physics lecture and Japanese lectures, I'm going to despise it. Um, it's, oh boy. I, I mean, people will get better about muting the mic over time and stuff, but as far as compared to like an in-person learning experience, this is, this is horrible. And I, I mean, there's so many other questions as to how testing is going to work online. Um, oh. I, Dude, it's it's a whole thing. I, I mean, Zoom, it, it's a great name, but aside from that, I I kind of despise my <laughs> online classes. I mean, the teachers at Gables have just been like, "eff it," and they're just and they're just not doing anything until we go back to school. And this is supposed to continue into the summer, I think. UF and FSU just announced that. They're going to continue doing online classes for the spring and the summer. And I think FIU and all the other public in-state universities are soon to follow. What's the status of MIT summer? So MIT summer isn't really decided yet. What, in fact, just I think yesterday it was announced that commencement is officially, at, at least on its original date, canceled. Um, on the original date, they're going to hold an online commencement that it, it sounds like a zoom meme but it, it actually is going to happen that way and um oh and then they'll also have a postponed in-person commencement but they haven't given out a date for that and it stands to be seen whether or not summer will actually be active at mit um re really the, the one that we've been following is harvard Harvard, like every time Harvard announces something, we're about 24 hours behind it. When they canceled classes and told everyone to move out by spring break, we did it 24 hours later. And when their president canceled commencement, we did it 24 hours later. So if, if you want to see what's going on in the academic world right now, Harvard's kind of spot to be looking at. In fact, I'm going to check something while we're on this call. Oh, but I go. think go I recently heard that... I don't know if this is a rumor or if this is true. Let me check, actually, before I say anything. Harvard president. Mm -hmm. Let's see. 
Oh, yeah, this is true. The Harvard president has, and his wife have tested positive for coronavirus. Oh, God. Oh, God. So they didn't quite cancel classes fast enough, I suppose. I mean, Harvard was one of the first ones to do it, weren't they? Harvard, yeah. So their spring break is a little bit earlier than our schools. And their whole idea, which is also MIT's idea, was to cancel classes and get people out before spring break. All those people came back from spring break and, you know, brought the disease from wherever they were from. It's it's a huge liability issue on the college's side. But at the same time, it also makes logistical sense that so many people would be returning to just single concentrated living space that it's just more efficient to get people out now while it was still relatively safe to fly as opposed to now with the chaos of we don't know if airports are going to shut down so it it was it it made sense to close down when they did and they actually were one of the earliest ones but it looks like he still caught corona that, that sucks it, it really does now i want to talk about let's throw it back to before you were an mit student Senior year, senior year, Mr. Coral Gables, you made top 10. What's the secret, Johan? I wasn't able to do it. You and Sun were able to do it. How do you do it? Uh, How do you make top 10? I I have no clue how I made top 10. To this day, day, I have no clue how I got as far in that competition and with as much support as you guys gave me. It's just completely out out of my mind because the talent wasn't what got me the top 10 that totally sold you guys though you guys love the rubik's cube talent but uh i have no clue how i got to top 10 that was that was really fun but i i really have no clue it's a mystery it's gonna remain a mystery i can't even even with all my knowledge i can't just you know explain what got me to top 10 in uh mr coral gables i mean i i I honestly think you you're underselling your talent, Johan. Uh, for for those of you who weren't there, he solved three Rubik's cubes, five. one five five, yeah. and one of them he did it blindfolded. Yeah, yeah. Um, do do you want to reveal the secret, or or a magician never reveals their secret? Perfect. A magician never reveals their secret, but people have probably you you could figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it was actually because of you that I started, like, figuring out how to solve a Rubik's Cube, and now I could solve a 2x2, two two, a 3x3, three three, and one of the triangle ones. The uh, pyraminks? The pyraminks, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, so I've been, I guess with all the extra time I have from Corona, I've been practicing Rubik's Cubing a bit more. Um, I've been, I had sort of let it go because I had been busy with school, but, you know, I'm starting to learn algorithms again. I tried a gear cube. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it kind of rotates two faces at one time. It's a really interesting one, but it's actually surprisingly easy. That, it, that was a surprisingly easy one to learn. Like if you're looking for a new Rubik's cube to solve, it's between that one and the IV cube. Those are two of the easiest cubes. Wait, what's the so IV cube? Uh, the IV cube, it only has like three pieces on each side. It's, it's very simple to solve. Um, it actually doesn't require any strict algorithms. So it's, I would say it's the easiest cube to solve. That one you could pick up. And if you spent enough time thinking about it, I'm confident that you could solve it just on like brain power. You don't, you don't need to memorize some sort of method to solve it. Um, all of the other ones I memorize the method for, you know, I don't learn these things by myself. Um, the people who do that 
are just incredibly bright pro uh, puzzle solvers. But yeah, the, the Ivy Cube is one that you don't need any real method to do. You can just jump right into it. And if you really think hard enough about it, you can get, you can get there or at least pretty close to solving it. Yeah. What's your fastest time on the three by three? On the three by three, it's probably, I, I don't have an exact time. I never did it officially, but it would be somewhere between 30 and 40 seconds. I don't think I ever got sub 30, but um, yeah, it would be between 30 and 40 seconds. And it's technically a bit of a lucky solve because I got a last layer skip or not a total last layer skip, but I didn't have to do certain uh, permutations of the last layer. So it reduces your time by you know a second or two. You don't have to cut through an algorithm. So it was, partially luck but also i was that was at my prime i was just shredding through it at that time so 30 to 40 yeah. seconds yeah. and and what made you get into rubik's cubing was it a friend or no actually i was just are, are you are you there i get into it boredom i, I was bored oh, boredom. day all right <laughs> yeah boredom. yeah i was uh oh the, the internet it froze yeah i was just i was bored one day and i saw I don't know. I was, I think I looked online and I'm like, you know, I, I want to learn how to do this. And it was just something that was really easy to pick up. You know, there's a ton of resources online for how, especially a three by three, you know, there's tons of resources. But uh, after that, I got into a bit of other cubes. Um, I never was too much for speed cubing, but I was interested in solving different types of puzzles, especially different uh, three by three uh, shape modifications. Those are fun. All right. And back to back to MIT, where where the culture is a little bit different than most other universities and the fraternity life. What made you want to join a fraternity? Now, for those of you who don't know Johan and haven't been able to see it by now, completely academically bright man. And, you know, when I first heard about you joining a fraternity, I was like, I, I could see it coming, but at the same time, I was like, you know what? Like, I, I didn't see it coming. And, like, there's, like, some people who, like, are, like, party ragers, like, like Adrian and John Mark, who are, like, in, like who are in fraternities, who are in fraternity life. And then there's, like, like how's fraternity life at MIT? So fraternity life is actually pretty varied at MIT. You have some fraternities which are actually a lot more like your traditional, your, your concept of fraternity. I, I won't say any of them. It's not going to be like your FSU fraternities. I'll be honest. We're, we're, we're a bit of a nerdier school. So it's not like your complete rager fraternity life type thing. But you do have some that are actually really heavy party fraternities. And you have others which are, you know, they're like fraternities with like a ton of game boards and stuff like that, you know, board games. Um, and it's like super nerdy to the max, like exactly what you would picture um, from that type of fraternity. What's interesting, though, is that MIT, at least in the area it's situated, is a bit of a party school in Boston. It's, it's not something to consider, but there's a surprising amount of social life at MIT. And I think that's part of what got me to join a fraternity. Um, I had, so when I had come up to, I, I did like a campus visit in April when I had first gotten accepted in senior year. And I had stayed at this fraternity. I was roomed here. And... I just, in, in my time here, I met a few guys that I thought were just hilarious. I mean, these guys were just great to hang out with. And when I came back in fall, I rushed and I was, yet again, I just, I hung out with even more of them and I realized, oh man, this is, 
this is someplace I'd like to spend my time at. So I just, I rushed them. It wasn't even like a big deal. I just, I thought it was a great place to hang out. So I decided, yeah, you know, let's, let's go for that frat life. And I haven't regretted it since. Um, my fraternity falls somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. I mean, maybe, actually, no, it's, it's a bit more, no, I'll say in the middle. On the one hand, you have a ton of nerds in the frat. Like these guys, these guys put me to shame. You have, you know, international physics medal, uh, international physics Olympiad medalists. You know, we have these guys who are just absolutely bright biology medal, uh, biology Olympiad medalists. You have, let's see, you have guys working on AI and stuff. These are, these are just like, they, they blow it out of water. I know one guy in my frat knows nine languages. He's a linguistics major. They're just Jesus, brilliant nine. guys. Nine languages. Yeah. This guy's, this guy's wild. He, and all of them are wild. Like being at MIT really humbles you because you, you come out of high school and you're top of the class and stuff. You, you, you think you're hot shit. But <laughs> you get here and it, it really knocks you down, man. But it, it's a whole experience because these people are just awesome. And you also get to interact with smart people. Like, you have these pictures of, like, the people who go to MIT and they're, like, curing cancer or something, right? But you also get to see these people, like, in their college years at their dumbest. And <laughs> you get to do really dumb stuff with these people that like you had sort of, you, you put them on a pedestal that they're, like, geniuses and the only thing they do is, like, nerd stuff. And you really see that these are humans, you know? They, they do a bunch of dumb stuff, too. And that's, that's, that's a real perk to being in a fraternity. Like you, you get to like interact with people. You get to meet new friends. That's great. And aside from the fraternity, have you joined any other clubs at MIT if available? So the two I was involved in this year were uh, Marine Robotic Club. Um, mind you, I, at the end there, I sort of uh, phased out my activity in that club because academics were ramping up. But I've been pretty involved with the Marine Robotics Club. And the other one I've been involved in was the Undergraduate Energy Club. Uh, specifically, I was on the career fair team. So when I arrived here in fall, they have the fall career fair. And I went to it, you know, all excited to check out, you know, what are the types of companies coming here? Don't get me wrong. You, you get companies like Google, PlayStation, all, all of them that you can imagine. But at the end of the day, they're all here for computer science majors. What you have to understand about MIT is that approximately one-third of the undergrads are studying computer science. When you really think about that number, that like a whole third of the community is studying just comp sci, it, it means like the rest of us, and then maybe like next 15, 20% is probably mechanical engineering. It means the other, you know, all the like 20 or so majors, in excess of 20 majors at MIT, are delegated to the other 50%. So all the companies there are looking for like your genius machine learning computer gurus. But it leaves me, a nuclear engineering major, completely screwed. I'm like, there, there's like two companies there for me. All the rest of them are like your robotics and computer science companies. So I decided to join the undergraduate energy club on the career fair team, which is designed specifically to create a career fair for the energy community at MIT. So th those are the two clubs, the Marine Robotics Club and the Undergraduate Energy. Those are the two that I spent the most time in, yeah. Okay, and aside from computer science and 
mechanical engineering, which like you said, is taking up about half or almost half of the people who are going to MIT to study. And I know it's named the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but how's the other stuff like the humanities at MIT? So this is actually really interesting. And this isn't something that I knew before coming to MIT. I just, MIT, you do science shit all day and, you know, forget about the rest. But MIT takes its humanities surprisingly extremely seriously. So I think its linguistics program has consistently been ranked number one. Um, It used to have Noam Chomsky teaching uh, linguistics. And I know you know Noam Chomsky and he's, I mean, he's groundbreaking in the world of linguistics. So he, he previously taught and they still have a top tier linguistics program. As far as other humanities, their business school has been consistently rising. Um, I'd still say Harvard's business school is, you know, top class, but MIT's is now, I think, top 10 business schools, maybe top five. Um, Humanities at MIT is just surprisingly a a huge thing there. And something I have to say is that the classes I've generally enjoyed the most have been some of my humanities classes. Um, because they're, they're almost like a break from the whole science math grind that you're on usually. So you get into these really interesting humanities classes that they take super seriously. And it's, it's, it's a really cool thing. You know, their philosophy program is pretty phenomenal. Um, philosophy, linguistics, and business are the main ones. Uh, also economics, but that one you might argue is a STEM major, but economics is also taken seriously, uh, political science. They're, they're really strong in the humanities. It's surprising, but it's true. All right. And how's the rivalry between Harvard and MIT? Okay, so MIT students and even faculty joke about it a lot. And the funny thing is that, like, we recognize that there's a bit of a rivalry there, but nobody takes it too seriously. Um, it's more something that you joke about as, as, like, a little, I don't know, poking fun at the other school. But um, I, I think if, if I can think of one thing that really sums it up, it was this one time in math class. I was messing around with one of those old window blinds, you know, the ones that you have to, like, twist. And they're just a pain in the ass to open. I hate those window blinds. But the, but the point is I'm struggling with it. And I, I see uh, my teacher says, I say to my teacher, actually, um, you know, how many students, how many MIT students does it take to open a window? And I, I swear, she's like an old British lady, but she's, she's sweetheart. But she just, with no hesitation, replies, well, I'm sure it's still less than how many Harvard students it would take. And I was just like, damn. Even even you're in on this roast, and I just—it's a small roast, but it's it's just great because that's more or less the culture of the rivalry. It's just kind of you roast them at this small level, and it's like it's something really fun. I don't I don't think you know I haven't been to Harvard that much, and I don't think they take the rivalry that seriously either. It's just a bit of a fun thing. You have two top schools within like two miles of each other. There, there's going to be a bit of a rivalry there. Yeah. All right. And how's Miami been since you've come back? Okay, so I'm totally not used to the weather. Um, Mind you, I've never been a big fan of like blistering heat, but goodness, it feels, it feels even worse now. You know, I was, I was in like 30 to 40 degree weather up there right now. You know, it's been a relatively warm winter, but 
it's still quite cool for me, you know, 30 to 40 degrees and coming back to this and the humidity, the humidity kills me. Um, so the, the weather has sucked. Um, as far as the city goes, I haven't gotten out much. Um, obviously, we have the whole sort of quarantine, you know, social distance thing going on. So I haven't been out too much. Um, one thing I have to say is I'm not too much looking forward to it. The people up there are just so nice. And you're kind of in an MIT bubble. So it's it's a totally different community. I, I completely vibe with it. And getting used down here to like this, it's a strange community here. You know, the social interactions on the one hand, there's a lot of like emphasis on, I don't even know how to say it. Not 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 political correctness, but there's almost this sort of, you know, there's social hierarchies and stuff that don't quite exist up there. Like up there, it's just, oh man, it's so much more laid back. Um, but you know, being back in Miami hasn't been too bad yet. I'd say I'd say the real, the real uh, drag has been the weather so far. That's kind of sucked. Well, fun fact about heat: it supposedly kills Corona, and. And I and back to what you were saying, I think part of the reason why a hierarchy doesn't exist at MIT is because everyone I think is on the same level at MIT. Like, like so, you go you go into the school like with the with the assumption that everyone there is brilliant. So that's that's to a certain extent that at least. So I'll say that in terms of that's why the hierarchy doesn't exist. That's true. The, the school treats it as though everyone's equal, which is why like a freshman like me can jump right into top level research, you know, with, with award-winning faculty and you just jump right into it as a freshman because you're treated as an equal there. But is everybody actually equal? Oh man, no. Some, some of these guys are, some of these guys are machines. These guys are out there, dude. Um, like I said, it's, you're mixed in now with all these top students who, I mean, these guys are seriously international, like, they they win international competitions and stuff, like, it's nothing. It's absolutely wild. Um, And that's not to say that, like, anybody there is dumb. You come to realize that even the people you think are dumb there are are not dumb. Like, everybody there is seriously brilliant. Um, Of course, there are more brilliant than others, but it's definitely, it's definitely, that's part of why there isn't so much of a hierarchy because a lot of it is just that the community there is kind of a merit, uh, sort of a merit, uh, meritocracy. And uh, what you don't have is really any sense of like being put down for knowing less. It's more of like, we believe that you can learn it. So even if you don't necessarily know it yet, you're treated on the same level because we'll teach it to you. Now you know it and now get to work it's that sort of environment yeah yeah i hope you can get back to mit sooner i hope this whole social distancing covid19 pandemic is over everyone is cured johan it has been great to have you but as you know all great things must end you are a very busy man i appreciate you taking the 40 minutes it is to to inter- to get interviewed uh, you probably have fraternity, homework stuff. I got stuff to do. Uh, the Zoom call was great. This interview was great. And this podcast came out spectacular. This this was a pretty great Zoom call. I was, I was actually, you have, a, you have a quality podcast going here. I, I really dig it. And it's, it's been great having me on here, dude. You know, 
thanks. I, I had a blast talking about stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, I do have stuff to do, but you know, I could I could take an hour out of my day easily for this. This was this was a blast. This was a blast. Thank you, Johan. See you. See you. Peace out, dude. Peace out. If you really like this episode, please subscribe or whatever it is you do on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast to add me and make sure that you're available and you can see when future content is uploaded. Thank you. Bye.